Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, we're pleased to connect up with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to see you once again. And good to see you again, Brian. And trust things are well up in Idaho. Yeah, as as well as can be expected, and and likewise, uh, I I always love uh, I love that we're going to have the chance to visit with uh, with you about uh, about one of the founding fathers today. James Madison is someone we'll be learning about. But before we learn about James Madison, talk to me about some of the work that you're involved in with the Foundation for Moral Law. I'd be glad to. The foundation has been besieged the last several weeks, and it's going to get even more, I'm sure over this issue about can my employer force me to get a vaccination or can I be required to be vaccinated before I can go in a store or fly a plane or something like that. And the foundation, hopefully later today, but certainly by tomorrow, is going to be releasing a statement. It's about eight pages in length dealing with some of the issues here. And we believe that the person who has objections to vaccination whether they are medical objections, whether they are religious objections, or both, has some strong arguments to make. For one thing, as of now, and this could change, but as of now, the vaccination is not approved by the FDA, and so under federal law, it can be released and administered only pursuant to what is called an emergency use authorization, and The U.S. Code 21 U.S.C. 360 goes on to say that when it is only under that EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, that before the patient is administered the vaccination, the patient must be told the benefits and possible drawbacks to taking the vaccination. And secondly, that the vaccination cannot be forced, that the patient has a right to refuse. Anyway, the question still arises on this. If a private employer decides to force vaccinations, is that coercive to the employee? In other words, the employee technically has a choice. He can decide to quit and go work somewhere else, unless he's in the military, in which case he may not have any choice like that. But at any rate, That's an issue that has yet to be resolved personally. I think that is sufficiently coercive to be in violation of this statute. Secondly, as far as raising a religious objection, I'd simply note that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 provides that employers, and this also includes educational institutions with their students, they're in the same situation as employers with employees, that an employer cannot discriminate against an employee based upon race or based upon religion. And it goes on to define religion as all aspects of religious belief, training, and practice, unless the employer cannot accommodate that religious practice without undue hardship. So what we're suggesting is that if your employer 
is forcing you to get a vaccination. And if you have a religious objection to that vaccination, and there are a number of objections I'm hearing people raise, some are simply saying that because the vaccines were developed from cell lines from fetal tissue from abortions, that taking the vaccine would make me complicit in abortion. And if you believe abortion is wrong for religious reasons, then that's a religious objection. Others simply say that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore I cannot subject it to medicines that may be untried and could be harmful. Another objection some raise is that I rely upon God rather than on medicine to heal me. But of course, that would need to be probably a more across-the-board objection to all forms of medical care. And one that I'm starting to hear more in the last few days, people are objecting that if it comes to the situation where I can't work or I can't fly or I can't do business in a bank or a store if I'm not vaccinated, then the vaccination has become like the mark of the beast spoken of in Revelation and objection for that reason. But if the person raises an objection like this, then the employer, if the employer is requiring vaccination, the employee should first of all ask the employer, could I see a copy of the policy? And when you see a copy of the policy, then you would ask, are there any exemptions to the policy? But, and if there are exemptions to the policy, then under the most recent decision, Fulton versus Philadelphia, they would have to give exemptions for religious reasons, as well as the objection or exemptions for others as well. And anyway, they may have a form. Many employers will have a form for those objections. And if they have a form, go ahead and fill it out, state your objection. If they don't have a form, then simply word it in your own words. And if anyone needs assistance in how to fill that out, we in the foundation can certainly give you some help on that. We're not going to put words in your mouth as to what your objection is, but we can help you word it in such a way for legal purposes. And then the burden of proof is on the employer, not on you. The burden of proof is on the employer to prove that granting you an exemption would cause an undue hardship. And if you want to suggest various ways that the employer could accommodate you, like, for example, allowing you to wear a mask instead of being vaccinated, I almost said violated, violated and vaccinated may be similar in other ways besides alliteration. An honest mistake. (laughs) Honest mistake, yes, okay, but anyway, or have a screen, a plastic screen around your desk, or wear gloves, other such things like this, then if you suggest accommodations like that, then once again, the burden of proof is on the employer to prove that those accommodations would not work. That is, they would cause an undue hardship. And we've had situations, we have one case going on in Texas right now, involving a man who was working for a company that makes equipment for the space program. And he works out of his home. He's a project manager, mostly out of his home. He'll come into the office maybe once every two weeks. And he had offered to his employer that 
If you want me to wear a mask, I will. If you want me to put a screen, wear gloves, whatever, I'm willing to do those things. The employer simply fired it. And so we have written a letter to the employer, and we're expecting to hear from them within several days as to whether they're willing to change their policy on this. We suspect that since they're making equipment for the space program, that this company is probably acting pursuant to pressure from some government officials. But then we had another case where you would think it'd be much more difficult to accommodate. This was a man who is a nurse in Ohio. He works for a retirement home where he is in daily contact with elderly residents who presumably are more vulnerable. And he stated his religious objection. The Retirement home simply responded that if you'll wear a mask, you're exempt from the vaccination. Now, you would have thought that that would be more difficult. You would have thought that the guy in Texas would have been a slam dunk. But point is, there is no rhyme or reason to how these things are being decided. Anyway, what we are doing in our memo is simply giving people some good practical advice as to how they can proceed on this. And hopefully this will be helpful and Also, we are hoping that within the not-too-distant future that this whole thing is going to pass away. But there is a question, of course, how effective the vaccinations are. And, of course, we're told by the Apostle Paul that we should avoid the oppositions of science falsely so-called. And notice, though, he didn't say avoid science. He said avoid the oppositions of science falsely so-called. We're not against science. We're against only false science. And that's what a lot of what's being spread today is simply false science. And the question, when you decide what scientists do I listen to, then once you decide that, okay, do I listen to what this scientist said last week or this week or next week? And that changes from time to time. But we're going to get into James Madison after the break here. But Madison made a statement. It is proper to take alarm at the first experiment. Hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens and one of the noblest characteristics of the late revolution. back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I'm excited. We get to learn a little bit about James Madison today, because that's a, that's a familiar name. And yet, if I were asked to provide facts about his life, I could only tell you his wife's name was Dolly. And I'd probably have to stop after that. Well, hopefully by the end of this program, we'll know a lot more about James Madison. He's the man that many call the father of the Constitution. That may be a slight exaggeration, because certainly many made important contributions, but Madison was a delegate to the convention. He spoke at the convention 161 times. Only Governor Morris and James Wilson spoke more frequently than he did. He was part of the Committee of Style, along with Governor Morris, that 
really determined the final wording of the Constitution. And he also, at the beginning of the convention, when the Virginia delegates arrived and were waiting for delegates from some of the other states to arrive, he led the Virginia delegates in drafting what was called the Virginia Resolves. That was just a set of ideas as to what they thought a new constitution should consist of. And when the delegates arrived, they were quite impressed with that list of resolves. And they kind of made Madison's Virginia Resolves the outline or the agenda for the convention. And then, late in life, Madison's work titled Notes on the Convention was published. See, the delegates had an agreement among themselves that no notes from the convention would be published until the last delegate had died. The reason for this is they wanted every delegate to be completely free to say whatever he thought, and they didn't want any delegate to worry that this might affect my chances for re-election as governor when I go back to my home state or something like that. And so the last delegate to die was James Madison. He was the youngest of the delegates. And anyway, so his notes on the convention are probably about the most authoritative source we have as to what actually happened at the convention. But William Pierce, another delegate to the convention, Pierce was from Georgia, and here's what William Pierce wrote about Madison. He said, Mr. Madison is a character who has long been in public life, but what is very remarkable, every person seems to acknowledge his greatness. He's saying this about the guy who was actually the youngest delegate there. He blends together the profound politician with the scholar. In the management of every great question, he evidently took the lead of the convention, and though he cannot be called an orator, he is a most agreeable, eloquent, and convincing speaker. From a spirit of industry and application which he possesses in a most eminent degree, he always comes forward as the best informed man of every point in debate. The affairs of the United States, he has perhaps the most correct knowledge of as any man in the Union. He has been twice a member of Congress and was always thought one of the ablest members that ever sat on that council. Mr. Madison is about 37 years of age. He was actually 36. A gentleman of great modesty with a remarkably sweet temper. He is easy and unreserved among his acquaintances and has a most agreeable style of conversation. Anyway, let's look at this man who, in addition to these things, is also along with Alexander Hamilton and the man we looked at last week, John Jay, the co-author of the Federalist Papers, and the Secretary of State under James Madison, and the fourth president of the United States. He was born in 1751. He was the first of 10 children. And you know, people talk about birth order sometimes, and Sometimes it does seem that the oldest child kind of develops qualities of leadership because he's used to leading the others, or maybe I should say bossing them around. But his father was an Episcopal vestryman. Mother was a pious communicant in the Episcopal Church. They were Virginians, and they were a slaveholding family. In fact, 
Madison's first playmates were slave children. We'll talk a little more about that later. His parents' library consisted of the Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, other Christian books. Madison started school at age 12. Now, when I say he started school then, he already had learned a great deal. Commonly, a student didn't start school until he had the basic reading, writing, and arithmetic down already. And anyway, among his teachers at school were an Anglican pastor, the Tom, Reverend Thomas Martin, a Scotsman by the name of Donald Robertson, and Madison once said of him, all that I have been in life, I owe largely to that man. He had a thorough education in Christian literature, but also in the classics, and he knew French, in addition to maybe a little bit of English. Now, Pastor Martin was a strong proponent of American independence, and so was Madison's father. And it's perhaps for that reason that in 1769, when Madison is 18 years of age, his father sends him to the College of New Jersey. Now, this is interesting. He's a Virginian, and he's Anglican, but he's sent to a Presbyterian college in New Jersey. College in New Jersey is what we today refer to as Princeton, but there he studied under the Reverend Witherspoon, and you recall some months ago, in one of our first studies on America's leading founding fathers, we looked at the Reverend John Witherspoon, who had come over from Scotland to head the College of New Jersey, and there Madison learned Hebrew from Reverend Witherspoon. He studied the Bible extensively, learned Orthodox theology, became a strong advocate of religious liberty, but also became a strong advocate of American independence. It's interesting to look at some of the notes that have been preserved from Madison's classes, where, for example, in his notes on the book of Matthew, chapter 1, he just records Verse 1, Jesus is a Hebrew name and signifies a Savior. Christ is a Greek name and signifies anointed. Pollution, Christ did by the power of his Godhead purify our nature from all the pollution of our ancestors. And many pages of such notes that show that he had a thorough grounding in theology. And Madison originally attended the College of New Jersey intending to become a pastor, but for some reason changed his mind, and never does he tell us exactly why he changed his mind. Some think he decided he wasn't really suited for the pastorate because he was of a rather frail health, he had a rather soft voice, and we didn't have microphones and audiovisual systems and so on in those days, so there was a sickness in those days that was referred to as preacher's throat, and you can imagine how the preacher would derive that condition. But interesting, most of Madison's friends were also persons intending for the ministry. And one of his friends, Bradford, said that he had decided on law instead of ministry. Madison wrote to him, You forbid any mention of divinity by suggesting that you have insuperable objections. 
Therefore, I can only console with the church on the loss of a fine genius and persuasive order. I cannot, however, suppress thus much of my advice on the head that you would always keep the ministry obliquely in view, whatever your profession be. I have sometimes thought that there could not be a stronger testimony in favor of religion or against temporal enjoyments, even the most rational and manly, than for men who occupy the most honorable and gainful departments and are rising in reputation and wealth publicly to declare their unsatisfactoriness by becoming fervent advocates in the cause of Christ. And I wish you may give your evidence in this way. Such instances have seldom occurred. Therefore, they would be the more striking and would instead be a cloud of witnesses. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're exploring the life of James Madison today. Colonel, what more can you tell us about how he saw the world? He saw the world in large part the way he was taught to see the world in his upbringing and there at the College of New Jersey. And again, the College of New Jersey was Presbyterian, and Reverend Witherspoon, his teacher, and others there were very much what we call Presbyterian Calvinists, believing, among other things, in the depravity of human nature. And as Smiley, in his work titled Madison and Witherspoon, Theological Roots of American Thought, says, man's innate depravity of which Presbyterians are keenly aware, must be checked by counteracting forces. Self-interest of individuals necessitates that government should limit it for the good of the whole. Faction, that is, impulse or passion of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interest of the community, as Madison describes it, separates men into groups. Faction is inevitable not removable by education, social engineering, or religion. And a workable government must recognize this. Then that government must be shaped so that one set of interests will keep other sets of interests from dominating. Checks and balances are required. Now, one of the most interesting things in the entire Federalist Papers, which, as I say, were written by Hamilton and Madison and John Jay, is Federalist number 51 where Madison is talking about the need for checks and balances. And here's what he says. Sounds very much like we learned at Princeton. He says, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself? but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. That really is the philosophy of the Constitution in a nutshell. The idea that, first of all, people are sinners, and therefore we can't live in anarchy. We need government power that will restrain them. But secondly, 
that those who run the government have the same sinful nature as everybody else, and therefore they cannot be trusted with absolute power. And so what do we do? We set up a government that we delegate to that government limited and delegated powers with the idea that any power is not delegated to the government are reserved to the people or to the states. That's part of the Tenth Amendment, part of the Bill of Rights that Madison introduced into Congress. We separate those powers into federal, state, and local levels and into legislative, executive, and judicial branches. We have checks and balances among them, other limitations, and so on. That is the philosophy of the Constitution in a nutshell. And Madison puts it so concisely right here. Now, some think that Madison was kind of like a tool of Jefferson. And Jefferson was not a delegate to the convention, but he was in France at the time. But he had sent to Madison a collection of some of his books and so on on government that Madison had studied and that Madison brought that knowledge to the convention. But rather than saying that Madison was a tool of Jefferson, it's probably more likely to say that Madison was a moderating influence on Jefferson. And when you look to the conflict in the 1790s between Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, who wants a stronger central government, and his Secretary of State, Jefferson, who wants a weaker central government, Madison is kind of like a moderating influence between the two, somewhere in between. When the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans become two parties, sometimes just called the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians, well, Madison becomes part of Jefferson's administration. It really comes down on that side, but I would have to say that his views probably seem a little more similar to those of Hamilton. Let's remember that Madison, along with Hamilton and others, advocates the ratification of the Constitution. Jefferson, as he wrote back from France, was, he said, I am at best ambivalent about it. There are some things I like and some things I don't like. So moderation would probably be a very good feature to describe the character of Madison and to describe his political philosophy as well. One thing else we have to say about Madison, too, is some have tried to describe him as a deist. And part of the reason for this is that for reasons that are difficult to understand, he was not very outspoken about his Christian when he took public office. In his youth, he was much more outspoken about them. But he seemed to be reticent to discuss theology and to take a stand on these issues. Partly, the reason might be that people didn't think there was a need to do so. This was a Christian society, and with very few exceptions, everybody was considered to be a Christian, and so there was no need to affirm it. Now I think we see that they were mistaken on this, that when people don't affirm Christianity, then Christianity becomes neglected and then becomes denied. But at any rate, the other thing we see about Madison is in his public life, he probably took the position that as a president, a secretary of state, a high official in government, I shouldn't be dividing the people by my religious convictions. I can be a godly person, and I can be 
a Christian. But <clears throat> beyond that, I shouldn't get involved in doctrinal disputes among churches. But here is one thing that we do know. Looking over Madison's writings, which I have looked at at great length, and so have many others, I have yet to see a single time where Madison says anything that repudiates or even questions any fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. If, in fact, he had come to deny any such doctrine, he said nothing in public about it. And therefore, I would put that back in the realm of fantasy and say that Madison is a Christian, but a Christian who wasn't outspoken about his religious beliefs. Another thing interesting about Madison is that Madison was a slaveholder. However, as a slaveholder, he had some severe reservations about slavery. In fact, on one occasion, he said that the whole Bible is against slavery. And yet, he went on to say that he could not really free his slaves in that economy of the time. If he did so, they would have no way of supporting themselves. He did his very best to be a good master to his slaves. One former slave born and raised on Madison's estate, a man by the name of Paul Jennings, said of him that Mr. Madison, I think, was one of the best men that ever lived. I never saw him in a passion. I never knew him to strike a slave, although he had over a hundred. Neither would he allow an overseer to do so. Whenever any slaves reported to him a stealing or a cutting up badly, he would send for them and admonish them privately and never mortify them by doing it before others. They generally served him very faithfully. I don't think he drank a quart of brandy in his whole life. For the first 15 years of his life, he drank no wine at all. Quite a high tribute coming from a man who was a former slave, and Paul Jennings wrote these words when he was very old. He was, eight, he was 1865 when he wrote these, so he must have been probably in his 80s or so by, by this time, but still had very, very good memories of Madison the man. Madison, as we're going to see also, was a strong advocate of religious liberty. And part of this comes from his youth, that he describes, for example, when he would be walking home from school, that he would sometimes hear Baptist pastors preaching in the jail. And they were being in jail simply because they were preaching without a license from the Episcopal Church. And Madison wrote, it amazed me they were in jail simply for preaching their convictions, which were in the main very orthodox. Interesting that he knew what orthodoxy was, and he considered it worthy of mention.
welcome you to our fourth and final segment of Constitution Classroom today on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and we're learning about James Madison. Colonel, it turns out he was a pretty fascinating character. How interesting that uh, he didn't speak up so much about his religion because uh, it was just understood. That was something people carried in their in their lives at that time, I guess. I've heard the question asked, if you today were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Right. <laughs> Some of us haven't left enough evidence of that. But Madison, as we say, was a strong believer in religious liberty, but that doesn't mean that he was an opponent of Christianity. In fact, it was precisely because he was a Christian that he believed in religious liberty. One of his most famous writings on the subject was his Memorial and Remontrance against religious assessments, which concerned a tax that was to be levied for the support of the Christian church. And he wrote an objection to this. And in his objection, part of what he says is, the establishment proposed by this bill is not requisite for the support of the Christian religion. To say that it is, is a contradiction for the Christian religion itself. For every page of it, disavows a dependence on the powers of this world. It is contradiction to fact, for it is known that religion both existed and flourished, not only without the support of human laws, but in spite of every opposition from them, and not only during the period of the miraculous aid, meaning the New Testament period, but long after it had been left to its own evidence in the ordinary care of providence. Nay, it is a contradiction in terms for a religion not invented by human policy, must have been pre-existed and been supported before it was established by human policy. He goes on to say that religion, or that the Christian religion, which we believe to be of divine origin, does not need the assistance of the state. In other words, he is saying, because Christianity is ordained of God, it doesn't have to depend upon government. Only religions created by man need government. Christianity doesn't. Now, I would add that Madison was not living in a situation where he saw government, like we see it today at so many levels, fighting against the Christian religion. But he's saying that the government, or that Christianity does not need the complete support of the government in order to be able to function and to flourish. He goes on to suggest that in countries where the Christian religion has been made the official religion of the state, or where any other religion has been the official religion of the state, that religion becomes stagnant, corrupt, and decadent. That Christianity flourishes best when it is not dependent on the state. And anyway, and then in a speech that he gave against these assessments, he, some of the notes from his speech suggests some of the other points that he is making here. He says, okay, if we're going to say that this assessment is going to be going to the support of Christian pastors, then the state is going to have to determine who is and who is not a Christian pastor, meaning the state is going to have to define Christian. He says the state doesn't have the competence to do this, nor does the state have the jurisdiction to do this. For example, if we're going to be saying dependent on the Bible, what Bible are we going to say it's dependent on? 
the Roman Catholic Vulgate, the Greek Septuagint, the King James? What Bible are we going to use? And what books will we consider to be canonical for the Christian Bible? The 66 that Protestants accept, or the Apocrypha as well? And then he asks, so how are we going to define Christianity? Will we define it strictly by the Nicene Creed and its Trinitarian formula that God is three in person but one in essence? Or would Arians be considered Christians? That is, those who believe that Jesus was divine but not co-eternal with the Father and not equal to the Father? Would Papists be considered Christians and Many in Virginia at that time would have said, absolutely not. Would Quakers be considered Christians? Again, many would have said, absolutely not. His point is that if we're going to have a law here that says this tax goes to support Christian pastors, even though it's no longer just to Anglicans, but to all Christians, then that means the state is going to have to define who is a Christian and who is not. And In doing so, the state is going to have to make determinations that it has neither the theological competence to make or the political jurisdiction to make. And so he opposed those religious assessments. Strong advocate of religious liberty, might add that in that sense, he and Jefferson found themselves in opposition to Patrick Henry. Henry, too, had opposed these assessments when they went to the support of the Anglican Church only. But when they went to the support of Christians in general, Patrick Henry thought they were good. Madison and Jefferson thought otherwise. And for an assessment to become law in Virginia, it had to pass in three separate sessions of the House of Burgesses. And with Henry in the legislature and his persuasive oratorical powers, he managed to get it passed in two sessions. Third session, he had the misfortune of getting elected governor, and so Hamilton, rather, Madison and Jefferson were able to defeat it the third time, and it did not become law. Now, when we come to the Constitutional Convention, as we say, Madison is a supporter of the Constitution, and in the debates over the Constitution, Madison supports the Constitution's ratification. And there at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Madison and his fellow supporters were opposed by Patrick Henry, and Patrick Henry was so persuasive that even though the supporters of the Constitution came to the convention with the assumption they had a 50-vote majority to get ratified in Virginia, with Henry's objections Henry came so close to defeating them, and one of his main objections was the lack of the Bill of Rights, that Madison, the night before the vote was to be taken, made a promise that if the Constitution is ratified by Virginia, I will immediately go to work at getting a Bill of Rights through Congress. Well, the Constitution was ratified by a very narrow margin, and it became law, And Madison was then elected to Congress, and true to his convictions, Madison immediately went to work on a Bill of Rights. Now, Madison had originally opposed a Bill of Rights. He said it isn't necessary, because 
The government consists only of the powers that we have delegated to it. We don't have to tell the government what it can't do. We only need to tell the government what it can do, and anything we haven't said it can do, it can't. We don't need a amendment that says Congress may not establish a religion. Obviously, they can't establish a religion. We haven't delegated to them any authority to establish a religion. But he promised a Bill of Rights, and he was true to his word, and he proposed a Bill of Rights consisting of, I believe, some 17 amendments, and 12 of these were passed. One of the other objections to a Bill of Rights, the objection raised by Hamilton, was that if we put a Bill of Rights here saying these are protected rights, what happens to the rights we don't list? They will be considered forfeited. And so Madison said in answer to this, we'll have the Ninth Amendment. And the Ninth Amendment simply says, the enumeration of this constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. That was his way of dealing with Hamilton's objection. And then, of course, the Tenth Amendment, that the powers not delegated to the federal government by this constitution or prohibited to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. He was opposed to an establishment of religion, but he did support the establishment of congressional chaplains. And so very obviously, he didn't see an absolute separation of church and state. He was the last delegate to the convention to die. He died in 1836. And as John Quincy Adams said about him, eulogizing him on the house floor after his death. Is it not a preeminent degree by emanations from his mind that we are assembled here as the representatives of the people and the states of this union? Is it not transcendentally by his exertions that we address each other here by endearing applications of countrymen and fellow citizens? In other words, he is saying, it is because of Madison that we are here today, and his mentor, John Witherspoon, would have been proud.